The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus made a promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. At the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, Jesus gave a commission to fulfill that promise. The commission was to his disciples, to all who would be his followers. Go, therefore, and make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. The last thing Jesus said before he ascended was again a reaffirmation of his promise that he would build his church. In Acts 1.8, he told his apostles, you will receive power from the Holy Ghost and you will be witnesses of mine in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. So the last 2,000 years of history have been the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. He has been building his church, even though the gates of hell have been withstanding it. Now today, in fact, if you're among us and you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and you've publicly identified as a follower of Christ through the waters of baptism, then you are a fulfillment of the promise Jesus made, which is an incredible blessing. However, there is an old enemy who has been opposing God's purposes since the Garden of Eden and who has been working actively to thwart the advance of Jesus' church. Have you noticed he's doing so again? (laughs) He's working to keep his church even now from growing and carrying out the gospel message. In fact, in the months ahead, don't be surprised if church is deemed forever non-essential. Don't be surprised if in your mind, danger and church become inseparably woven. This is the work of the age-old enemy. And 500 years ago, he almost succeeded. The church was on the brink of no longer existing. He had a wicked but brilliant plan. Take all the verbiage of church, all the verbiage of Christianity, all the packaging, the facade, but underneath it have a rotten core. Market goodness, beauty, and morality, but underneath find that it's just moralism without actual heart change. It's just social goodness without the Spirit's transformative power. And it's just window dressing without the beauty of Christ. 503 years ago yesterday marked the beginning of the Reformation. On that day, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. He nailed it to have a discussion, an academic discussion, Is Scripture authoritative? And how can unrighteous humanity be made right with God? To help us know the background against which Martin Luther was working, and it is the background against which all religious false teaching still works, I want to show us a short video. It's from American Gospel, and it explains the Roman Catholic Church, how it did work and still works. Let's watch that, and then we'll continue our sermon. In many ways, the defining doctrine of true biblical Christianity is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is God declaring us righteous even though we are guilty of sin. 
We see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no man may boast. And so this is the great dividing line between biblical Christianity during the Reformation and the Roman Catholic religion. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church on justification is that they believe that you are justified by faith plus works. In fact, at the Council of Trent, which people refer to as the Counter-Reformation, they actually issued an anathema. If anybody believes that they are justified by faith alone, they are condemned under the anathema of the Council of Trent. And so the Roman Catholic Church actively was opposing and cursing those who were holding a biblical gospel. It is often called the plus religion because Catholicism teaches that you are saved by faith plus works, by grace plus merit, by Christ plus other mediators, according to scripture plus tradition, and for the glory of God as well as the glory of Mary and other saints. When you look at the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, it is a salvation of works and sacraments. In the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, baptism cleanses an infant from original sin. And that is the sacrament of regeneration as well as justification. That it starts them off on this plan, on this track. Along the way, however, they can commit these small sins, venial sins, which plunges them back down. And heaven forbid they commit a mortal sin, which knocks them completely off the plan of salvation. And he must now receive sacraments. He must confess his sins to a priest, which is the sacrament of penance. And then he must be re-justified by doing good works, by doing penance. And once he is re-justified, then he must maintain his salvation through sacraments. And if, in the end, if they have enough people praying for them, and if they do enough time in purgatory, they might possibly get to heaven. How they get to heaven is based on what they do rather than what Christ has done. But the Bible teaches there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the work has been done. He saves you totally, completely, perfectly. And even though, yes, we sin and can repent, the sacrifice of Christ has paid for those sins. And so there is assurance that he has saved you, he has plucked you out of the world, you're in the palm of his hand, and nobody can pluck you out of his hand. And so that's why the reformers cried the five solas, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. That message has always found opposition. And the Jerusalem Council, and we read about it in the book of Acts, actually addressed this very same issue. The rabbis and the Judaizers were saying to the Christians that God will accept you by his grace through faith and your keeping of the ceremonial laws, being circumcised, washing your hands, keeping the food laws. And the entire church agreed, as summarized by uh, the Apostle Peter's statement, but that is not the good news. That's not the gospel. Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible for those who do their part. He came to accomplish it and to give it freely to all of his people. The question is, well, how do we know if faith is real, if there's no works? Doesn't the Bible say faith without works is dead? 
And so don't we have to do works to be saved? Isn't that the argument? Is that what we have to be doing? But there's two understandings of that, and one's biblical, one's not. So the Roman Catholic view of salvation, and really any works-based system of salvation, takes works and puts it at the root and says that works plus your faith in Jesus is what produces salvation. But the Bible teaches that it's not the root, it's actually the fruit. That your faith alone in Jesus, that is what saves. And then a, a life that has been saved, a sanctified, regenerated heart, produces fruit the fruit of good works. And so you know a person's been saved because of their fruit, but the fruit is not the reason they're saved. They're saved by God, by grace, through faith in Christ. In many ways, the defining doctrine of true biblical Christianity is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is God declaring us righteous even though we are guilty of sin. We see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may All right, boast. so that video gives so us the, the background of what happened in the day and age that Martin Luther was. If you're in Romans 3, we're going to continue the passage that Pastor Mark was reading for us. And I just want to make clear my prayer for us through this text. I want to make sure through this text we know the true gospel which is surprisingly unknown, even in churches like this one. And also through the true gospel, may God encourage us that he will keep his promise. He will grow his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All right, none of us have any say in what century we're born in or what continent we're born on. So imagine you were born over 500 years ago, 1483 in Europe, and then you would be Martin Luther's era. And in his era, you could not go and find a church building that would proclaim the true gospel. They didn't exist. That's how much power Satan had exerted in opposing the true gospel. You were either underground or it wasn't available. So Luther grows up in an era in which he is taught actually something a lot of people in the South are taught, that if you want a relationship with God, you just have to do your best and be a good person. So that false message is a very old historic one. Now, when Luther was taught that, his conscience was still condemning him. But I'm not good enough. And so he became a monk. And as a monk, his hope was that he could ameliorate the accusations of his conscience. I'm not good enough. Maybe I can work my way off. Now, in reading the Bible, he still kept being convinced that he's not good enough, but he was trying his hardest. And do you know what his superiors in the Catholic Church made him do? I think it's hilarious. They made him earn a Ph.D., in the New Testament to quiet him down. <laughs> so here he is translating books of the Bible from Greek into German in the hopes that the church will get him to just quiet down and go away. But in God's good providence, here are the books that he translated. Psalms, Galatians, and Romans. Those sound like books that may make you a believer. <laughs> so as he's translating those books, Luther starts to realize that what he's been told, do your best and maybe you'll be good enough, isn't actually at all close to what the Bible says. And so with that backdrop, the question that's haunting him, what hope exists for unrighteous humanity, is the question we'll look at this, this morning. Now, the passage in front of us, uh, Pastor Mark read verses 19 through 20, but look ahead through 21 through 26. We'll read it once in overview, and then we'll come back. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, given just that overview, you'll notice there are three terms repeated. The word righteousness appears four times. The word just or justify appears three times. And the word faith appears four times. Thus, if we're to understand this passage, we must understand these three terms. And I think by defining them, we'll notice that we might have a head knowledge that is not actually a heart knowledge. Let's begin with the word righteous. Righteousness is conformity to a standard. It's when something is what it's supposed to be. Imagine that your job is to certify milk and its freshness. Now, let me confess my annoyance. I'm one of those annoying people that when I go to the grocery store and I go to get milk, I reach my hand through the back and try to find the one that has the latest date. So I'm sorry if I'm the one that moves the other ones behind yours. (laughs) Now, imagine your vocation is your job is to certify the freshness of milk. So you go from grocery stores to other ones and you open it. And if the milk is righteous, it's fresh. It's in accord with its standard. But if the milk is curdled, It's unrighteous. And there's no gradation between them. You can't have a little bit of curdling and say, I'm not that bad. (laughs) You're unrighteous. You're either righteous or unrighteous. And there is no continuum between them. It is an all or nothing affair. Which is why James 2 verse 10 says, if you offend the law in one point, by definition, you're a lawbreaker. You're unrighteous. So righteousness is conformity to a standard. God is righteous when he acts like God, when he acts in accord with his perfections. When we fail to be God morally, we are unrighteous. All right, the next key word is justify. To justify is to certify something as righteous. It's a validating performance record, something worthy of acceptance, something counted positively. Now, I think we understand this in head knowledge cognitively, but I think many of us don't understand it in our heart application which is why many of us actually attempt to self-justify ourselves. There are many ways to do that. Some people try to do so through achievement. Look at what I've done in my career. Look at all the amazing things I've done. You see, I'm worthy. I should be certified. Or accolades. Maybe important people have told you that you did something special. Maybe you have it hanging on your wall. And so you can appeal to that and say, you see, I'm worthy. I have a performance record that's valid, that should be certified. Or we try and self-justify through relationships. Look at my children. I put all my hopes in them. Look at how successful they are. Look at what they've accomplished. You see, I count. I'm worthy. I should be accepted. Or we do so through our family name, look at its reputation, or through people who accept us. In fact, the idol of pursuing the approval of others is actually a justification problem. Something you understand in head, but not in heart. Now, the third word is faith. 
Another word that is so obvious, trust, reliance, confidence, but when it comes to applying it to our hearts, we very rarely do. Many times in my life, I've met people who I think probably are believers, but in actual practice, they think that they contribute to their justification. In practice, they think, God paid the entrance fee, but now that I'm in the arena, my performance earned my stay. That is why, based on the kind of religious tradition you're from, when you sin, it can be a crisis moment for you. If you're from like a sawdust trail revivalistic tradition, then when you sin, you have to rededicate your life to the Lord in the hopes that you can re-justify yourself and earn your belonging. If you're from more of a high church religious tradition of uh, smells and bells, <laughs> then when you do wrong, it's oh, what good works can I do? What holy ambience can I be around? How can I redevote myself and give to the poor with more drive? But all you're really trying to do is self-justify yourself. This is why a lot of times children grow up in the church and they kind of go away from the church for a while. And then they come back when they have children of their own and then they want to like do better. And then they come for a while and they don't do as well as they think they want to do and then they leave again. And then they come back maybe in their 40s when they're sick and they're having some struggles and maybe I can do a little better and this time I can validate myself. But all of those are actually a justification problem. Now this passage makes painfully clear that humans are un righteous. Therefore, we cannot justify ourselves to any degree. We must have a ground of trust, reliance, and confidence that is not within, but that is without, in its total. So now look again in verse 19 through 20. We're going to go a little more slowly here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Hey, I'm pretty good. No, stop. <laughs> and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Because sin leaves us legally guilty before God, no amount of works we could ever do could repair the damage we've done. Imagine someone is texting while driving, and so they look down at their phone, and without paying attention, they drive through the front of your store window. <laughs> their car goes right into the middle of the store that you've spent years making. And then, before court, they say this, hey, I give to charity. I volunteer as a youth soccer coach. I've made cookies for people in my neighborhood. You'd be thinking, that's really nice. That does not repair my storefront window. No amount of good things they could do could repair the damage that they have done. You can't add on the outside to a problem that's done over here. See, the law reveals our sin. That's the purpose of the law. In Christ, it can have a purpose of guiding godly living, but it cannot ever have a purpose of creating a righteous standing before God because it only exposes how desperately unrighteous we are. This is why some of the most beautiful words in the Bible you'll ever read are, but now, or but God. Look in verse 21. But now. Martin Luther came to hold the verses we're going to focus on today, 21 through 26, as the chief point not only of the book of Romans, but the central passage of the entire Bible. And I hope you'll see why today. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. 
We just read in verse 20, we can't be saved by what we do in the law. The law reveals our sin. So God has chosen to give righteousness as a gift, even though we could never earn it. Now, that's actually the way the whole Old Testament works. So look at the end of verse 21. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. And in other words, people have always been saved this way, receiving righteousness as a gift. The Old Testament points to that. But that righteousness could never be earned by us keeping the law because the law only reveals how we failed. Therefore, the righteousness of God must be received through faith. So look in verse 22. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And now verse 22 makes clear at the end, for there is no distinction. Have you noticed how we as humans love making distinctions of other humans? <laughs> we sort them into boxes, and whether it's politics or skin color or social standing or economic viability, in our mind, there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. Now here's what verse 23 is going to tell us, and it's a nice punch to the gut. From God's perfect, impartial, all-seeing eye, all of us are the bad guys. There's just one box, and we're all in it. So verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short is a term used in archery. It's like there was a goal you were supposed to get, but you missed it. See, the law is actually a gift to us because without the law, we would end up thinking we're not that bad. The law helps us from defining doing wrong according to our own definitions. The law exposes to us who God really is and makes us be honest. It's like saying that you did something great, but then when you watch the tape back, it's not quite how you said it. One time I was playing mini golf with my kids, and two holes behind me were these other kids playing. They were probably like six to eight years old. And one kid yelled out, oh, I almost got a hole in one. And the other kid said, well, how many hits did it take you? How many strokes did you have? And he said, five. <laughs> five is not almost a hole in one. <laughs> Falling short of the glory of God, we're not close. If you think like, I'm a pretty good guy. No, no, you're really not. The standard is not anybody you know. The standard is God's glory. We fall infinitely short of it. In fact, because we struggle believing this, Jesus did something in the Sermon on the Mount that is remarkable. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus said this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people in that day, the original hearers, they would have thought, nobody's more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says, yeah, you know, those guys, if you don't exceed them, you'll never go to heaven. Never. And then in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, he gives example after example of how we tend to think we're good, but in reality, we're not. He says, hey, you probably tell yourself, I've never murdered anybody, but have you ever been so angry at someone that you thought deep down, man, I wish I didn't have to deal with them. That's murder. You say, well, man, I've never committed adultery. But have you ever looked at someone who you're not married to with a desire where you wanted them in a way that isn't appropriate for you to want them? Well, then you've committed adultery. You say, well, man, I've, I've never hurt anybody. Really? You, you've never retaliated against somebody else who you thought deserve the cold shoulder or deserve for you to not treat them the same way or you're not just going to have new friends because that person needs to learn through experience how much they've hurt you? Of course you have. 
This is why at the end of Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says this, you must therefore be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. His point is you think you're good. You are infinitely bad. See, we don't even know what sin is. I, I had a student in uh, our mission trip, and, and he was helping us do hand motions to remember sin. And, and so he said, sin is when what you do, when what you say, or when what you think breaks God's law. But he forgot the fourth one. It's also when what you desire breaks God's law. If you do something that's contrary to God, it's sin. If you say something contrary to God, it's sin. If you think something contrary to God, it's sin. If you want something contrary to God, it's sin. And if that's not bad enough, those are just sins of commission. The Bible also has a category of sin of omission when you fail to do the above. Let me go through those. Sin is when you fail to do what you're supposed to do. Let me quote the King James from James. For him who knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you can do something good and you don't do it, it's sin. Sin is when you fail to think what's good. We just went through the book of Philippians. Brothers, whatsoever is good, true, noble, lovely, perfect, of good report, think on these things. When I'm not thinking on what is in character, with God, it's sin. Sin is also when I fail to say something good. Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but that which ministers grace to the hearer. So if I fail to edify when I can, I've sinned. Sin is also when I fail to desire what God desires and delights in. This is why Jesus says the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Have you ever been in one of those trampoline jump zones? They have sometimes a pit full of like cut out, uh, I don't even know what to call it. Foam, thank you, my wife is here. <laughs> so a cut out of foam, and I, my kids, they would jump in the trampoline and they'd land in the foam and then they can't get out and I would jump in and then I can't get out. <laughs> so here I am sinking in the foam. When we hear what sin is from the Bible, we should feel overwhelmed, sinking, unable to move. That bad news is necessary for your heart to soar at the next verse. Look at verse 24. Verse 23 can say, all have sinned, but now verse 24 picks up the all who believe from verse 22. So all who believe are justified by His grace as a gift. Here we are hopelessly drowning in sin, dead at the bottom of the pit. And God justifies sinners by His grace as a gift. In Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church taught what it still teaches today. Formerly, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that righteousness is something that you progressively get a little bit of over time. The word they use is infused. Hey, if you keep the sacraments, if you pay alms, if you go to church, you'll get a little bit of righteousness over time. And maybe at the end, your good will kind of outweigh your bad. This is actually how all religions work. Over time, if I do enough, maybe then I'll be a good person. Justification is the exact opposite. It's not a process that happens over time. It's a pronouncement made all at once. God justifies immediately the unjust in his grace as a gift. I still think we don't understand this as Christians, though, because when we hear the word justified, we think pardon or forgiveness. 
Justification includes pardon and forgiveness, but it's infinitely more than that. I love how the Christian author Martin Sloan put it years ago. He said this, Forgiveness means you may go. Justification means you may stay, you may come. They mean almost the exact opposite thing. One includes just the freedom to walk away. The other includes a righteous record given so that you are always accepted. Justification, then, is something that someone else does so that you are seen through the lens of who they are. It's a gift that's applied to those who don't deserve it. This is great news because it means that my ground of confidence before God is not my rededications, nor is it my service or liturgy. It is something that God sees as permanently accepted. And here's what it is. Notice now the end of verse 24. We are justified freely by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redeem means to buy or to purchase. It was used in Paul's day when a slave had his freedom bought for him. Here are the two things then you keep need. You must keep these in your mind. Justification is both a free gift but it was also very costly to the person who provided it. Free gift of infinite cost to the person who provided it. A month ago, it was a sunny day, and we were at the park at Shelley Lake Park, and afterwards we saw signs for a garage sale, and we drove over to the garage sale, and we did that dance where you rummage through things as people are looking at you. (laughs) We're rummaging through, deciding if we want to buy anything, and at the end of it, ultimately, in my cheapness, I decided not to buy anything. And I went and sat in the van. And then my wife took the kids, and they had a second round where they decided if they wanted to buy anything. And at the end, they didn't buy anything either. But then the owner of the home, the runner of the garage sale, the father-husband there, gave my children each a gift. Judah came to the car, and he had a steel metal school bus, super cool school bus, and it was given to him for free. He did nothing to earn it. He did nothing to require it. Based on how he was running around the garage sale, he may have not deserved it, but it was given to him. But it cost someone. I'm assuming the owner of that garage sale bought that for his own children at some point. And even now, it had a sticker of value that he could have demanded from us, but he didn't. He gave it freely. This is how justification works. It's given completely as a gift, but it does cost the giver greatly. And in this case, we're talking about something of immense cost. So here's what's the wonderful but humbling truth of justification. Justification means that through faith in Christ, we as sinners pay nothing for our sin because Jesus paid everything for it. The Bible uses this exact phraseology, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But why can we say that? Because of John 19, 30, when Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished. We pay nothing only because he paid everything. So you see, it's not a cheap gift. It's an act of grace that is immense and amazing. And now we read how in verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Many of these terms have caused me much mental wrestling this week as I'm praying for how to best explain them. But this, in my mind, is the most complex. It's the word helisterion. And it includes two concepts in the Bible. It includes both propitiation and expiation. 
The ESV writes propitiation, but the NIV is a little better. It writes sacrifice of atonement, which better captures what God has done for sinners through Christ. Let me explain both of those terms. They seem very far off, but they're actually not as far off as you think. Let's start with propitiation. If you lived in the Greek city-states a thousand years ago, and you were about to go on a boat across the Mediterranean Sea, you would be afraid because a lot of those boats get shipwrecked. And so what you would do is you'd go down to a nearby temple, and you would find the god Neptune, and you would then make an offering to that god based on the fact that you're a bad person, but maybe then you'll have safety in travel. You say, that's really old. We don't do that kind of stuff today. Uh, Let me update you then. My family's from Italy. We were raised Roman Catholic. And my cousin had a car given to him by my uncle. And hanging from the rearview mirror in that car was a St. Christopher diadem. So my uncle would go down to the Catholic Church, and he'd light a candle to St. Christopher, and he'd put alms in the box in the hopes that that car would have safe travels because St. Christopher is the patron saint of travel. Now, based on the rides I had in that car going to school, I don't think he was paying enough. (laughs) I picked up a lot of hubcaps on the side of the road. So propitiation actually is a concept that we're still very familiar with. Once I was in a Walmart in South Carolina when Steph and I were engaged, and I stopped to look at the flowers there. And in walked a couple behind me, a middle-aged couple, a man and, and a wife. And as they were walking by, the man looked at me and he said, hey, it's not worth it. He he, he was saying those flowers won't propitiate. They won't cause someone who's been wrong to be favorably inclined to you. That's what the word means, propitiate. Now, if we were to propitiate, if someone who we've wronged had a change of heart and they now saw us differently, that still doesn't change the fact that the sin has to be dealt with, and that's the second term, expiate. My grandma, Susak, a wonderful lady, She has a mailbox at the end of her drive, and I've shared part of this before. For years, these teenagers in her street would drive by, and they'd have a baseball bat out of the side of the window, and they would knock down her mailbox because to them it was fun. And I was getting mad. That's my grandma, you know. So they're driving by, knocking down her her mailbox. She buys a new one. They knock down the, the next one, too. A third time, she bought a new mailbox, and they drove by and knocked down the mailbox again. Now, if they bought her flowers and got a Hallmark card, and showed up on a Saturday afternoon and said, man, we're we're really sorry. We shouldn't have done that. And it warmed her heart so that she was now favorable towards them. She still, at the end of her driveway, has a broken mailbox. That's why this term, it's more than propitiate. It's more than changing the heart of the person you've wronged. It's also expiate. It's actually dealing with the result and ramifications of what has been done wrong. And notice in the text, who puts forward Christ? God. Who propitiates himself? God does. We don't propitiate him. He propitiates himself. And then who makes the payment for what we've done? Not us. His blood. You see, forgiveness always requires costly suffering. One more illustration, if you can bear it, to help us hopefully grasp this. If you have a restaurant and you've put your life savings in it and a competitor across town is sick of your business thriving and one night he sneaks in and puts rats in your kitchen and then makes a burner Google account and writes terrible reviews about you and your business starts to plummet, you have three options that you have. 
First, you could sinfully retaliate and up his rats for snakes in his business. (laughs) Second, you could retaliate in righteous anger and you could prosecute him to the full extent of the law. Or third, he could come and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. And you could say, you know what? I'll bear the cost for you. And you don't take him to court and you don't make him pay for what he's done and your business actually suffers and closes because of his actions to you. Forgiveness requires costly suffering. You see, what Jesus did on the cross for us was not just an expression to show us that he cares about us. It was an actual payment for what we have done. Jesus didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. See, forgiveness requires costly suffering, and that's what Jesus has done for us. If I looked at my kids one day and say, hey, do you guys know how much I love you? And then I ran out and ate a scorpion, that would be stupid, and it would make no sense. But if we're at a museum or a zoo, and one of my kids, and this is not inconceivable, breaks into the habitat where the scorpions are, (laughs) and it starts to crawl across their face, and it's about to strike them for their stupidity of breaking in the habitat, but then I reach in, and the scorpion with poisonous venom hits me, and I bear it then I've loved them. See, God doesn't just spread his arms because I want to show you that I care about you. know, Christ spreads his arms because we deserve that and he took it in our place. So think about this today. You've lied. You're a liar. And Jesus bore in his body what liars deserve. You've lusted. You've coveted. And the full bloom of that, Jesus took in his body. You've been short-tempered rude, hateful, and arrogant to other people. You've whined and complained when God's grace has been all around you. You've been sinfully spiteful to other people. You've been idolatrous. And Jesus got what a spiteful, short-tempered, arrogant, idolatrous person got. He got what we deserve, and he took it willingly. You see, Jesus took our sin, but he takes it And it's applied on our account if we receive it in faith. So verse 25, Jesus did this to show God's righteousness. See, God will act in accord with his character because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And that phrase gets very confusing to people. And let me take just a second on it. Think of what David did, right, in the Old Testament. David kills his neighbor's He kills Uriah. He takes his wife. So he commits murder and adultery. And if Satan was happening to be going to buy God's throne that day, Satan would say, God, you got to kill him. You got to kill him. I mean, there's no way you can clear the guilty and let David live. This is what his sin deserves. Crush him now. But God doesn't. How? How is God able to be just and not immediately punish the guilty? God can't clear the guilty and be just and be righteous. How? Because in his divine forbearance, he saved them on credit for what he would do himself. You see, David did die, but Jesus died for him. David's sin was punished, but Jesus bore it. That's what justification is. So verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's election season which means, unfortunately for us, we can't go anywhere without commercials or signs. 
Imagine there's someone running for some sort of office that's judicial, someone who will be a judge or a sheriff. And under their name, they have the slogan, tough on crime. But when you read their record, you find out that they've had several people who were completely convicted with demonstrable evidence, and they just let them go. You wouldn't take their slogan very seriously. God cannot be God and leave sin unpunished. But God being God means on the cross, both his full justice against sin is righteously satisfied and also his gracious love towards the undeserving is fully fulfilled. At the cross, love and mercy meet. Martin Luther figured this out in 1519, two years after he posted his 95 Theses. There he was translating Romans because he was teaching it at a local university. And he was in Romans chapter 1, verse 17 which says the gospel is the power of God to those who believe, verse 16, but then verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And here's what Luther wrote. I hated the righteousness of God. I hated the fact that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. I lived as a monk without reproach. And yet I still felt that I was a sinner with an extremely deserved conscience. I could not believe that God could be placated by my living I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I murmured greatly and was angry with God. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is declared righteous shall live. And then I began to understand the righteousness of God is the way which the righteous God gives faith to make righteous sinners. God justifies by faith. And the verse continues, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then Luther wrote, now I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther introduced into the theological lexicon a Latin phrase, which is this, simul justus et peccator, which means at the same time declared just, yet also a sinner. You see, that's the point. God does not declare righteous people righteous. There is no unrighteous. God declares unrighteous people righteous because his son's righteousness is placed on their account. This means that we will always be at the same time a sinner who has declared something we're actually not, but Jesus is righteous. Justification is a gift. It's a gift that's easy to lose in church. And 503 years ago, it was almost lost. But God allowed it to be recovered on the basis of Scripture alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And it's received by faith. So look now in verse 27 and 28. What becomes of our boasting? No, seriously, stop and ask and answer that question. Tell me what you would ever be able to boast about before God. Hey, I deserve it a little. No, <laughs> no. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Look down at verse 30. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised or the uncircumcised by faith through faith. 
See, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It is based on truth revealed in Scripture. But nor is faith aware of all knowledge and all factors. Faith commits based on the truth we know in the source of Christ. But hear this very well. Faith is not an achievement. It's an acceptance of someone else's achievement. Faith does not mean try harder. Have a fresh start. No, no. Faith means transfer trust away from your trying and put it in the person who succeeded. So do not have faith in your faith. Have faith in the person who is faithful. At this point, normally someone objects. Wait, pastor, are you saying that we are totally justified by Christ and we don't do anything? If you're really saying that, then people aren't going to obey the Lord anymore. I mean, what motivation is there for living a good life? I have several answers to that. The first would be, and I hate saying it so bluntly, but only someone who hasn't truly understood how depraved they are and how gracious God is would even ask that. Because no one who knows how desperately deserving they are of the wrath of God would even think to ask, now I'm going to do whatever I want. No one would even think that. Second answer I would give, all of God's graces include our growth And to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, Jesus just crowns his own gifts. The good things that we do are all of grace. They're a carrying out of the grace of God. But here's a third answer I would give. If the removal of fear of punishment causes you to no longer obey, then what do you think the motivation of your obedience has always been? It has been self-centered, self-preserving fear, meaning that all your righteousness is just filthy rags because you've never obeyed out of love once, if that's been your question. You see, faith always has fruit because it's connected to the root. This is why Luther wrote, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith, of course, is never alone because it's connected to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus promised to build his church, and for 2,000 years he has been. 500 years ago, the church almost collapsed. And today, the church feels like it's careening on the cusp of chaos. But we sung the truth today that Martin Luther penned. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. I have to ask you this morning, are you justified? You will not be based on anything you do. But Romans 10 tells us in verse 13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, call on the name of Christ. Express that publicly through baptism. Be part of the fulfillment of God's promise to build his church. And take heart, wherever the true gospel is proclaimed, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Let's pray this morning. God, just as there were two thieves next to the cross, so there are two thieves next to the gospel. One of them is the sinful teaching that we could somehow be just based on what we do or contribute. That is a lie. We are justified solely on the work of Christ in our behalf. But there's a thief on the other side too. And that's the thief that, well, it must not have cost God very much to forgive us, so who cares if we continue in sin? 
But Lord, Romans tells us, if grace abounds, should we continue in sin? God forbid. So help us to remember the two truths today. Justification is given freely, but it costs you everything. This is not a cheap gift. And if we fully grasp it, we wouldn't even ask, does it matter how I live anymore? (laughs) All we would think is, let me present my body a living sacrifice as my reasonable act of worship. Because if the 11 chapters of Romans explain how desperately we need salvation, then the last four make total sense. Surely then my heart desire is to live for him who loves me and now is at work in any good deed I do to the glory of God. But this morning, recover what we're in danger of losing and was almost lost 500 years ago. You're not telling us to try harder or have a new start. The gospel's not a New Year's resolution, nor is it a help-wanted sign. It's a look-at-what-Christ-did-for-sinner sign and receive it through faith. So thank you, Lord, that you declare the unjust just because your Son has been righteous in our place. And in doing so, you remain righteous. You have dealt with sin. But Lord, let everyone who hears this sermon today understand this. If they reject the gift of Jesus Christ, they will pay for their sin and they will never pay it off. And that's why hell is forever. This is a serious truth. Either I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ or I'm rightly punished for my unrighteousness forever. So may people run to the cross and find hope and confidence in the only place where we have it, in Christ alone. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.